Long days and pleasant nights to you folks. This week's guest is Alex Flanagan. She is a writer, a saxophonist, and podcaster. We have an excellent talk about trauma and putting more good than bad into the world. Um, she has a wonderful podcast called The Cryptid Keeper Podcast. Go check that out. We mentioned that again at the end of the episode where you can find all that stuff. Um, all the podcasts here on Wayward Wordsmiths are listener-supported, so if you have an interest in contributing to or contributing to our network slash production company, go to patreon.com slash waywardwordsmithsco or just add me on Venmo. Yeah, that could work too. Let's listen to what Alex has to say. Hey, Alex, how are you? Hey, I'm doing just fine. How are you? I'm doing quite well on my own self. Um, thank you for being on. Um, so you are a screenwriter, or not a screenwriter, a playwright, mostly, playwright, yeah. correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and did you start doing acting first and then move to writing, or did you just see plays and go, no, I want to make those? <laughs> uh, so that's... Uh, it's actually, you know, kind of an interesting and convoluted story, but, um, I grew up doing acting from the time I was very young. I was on stage. I did a lot of, um, theater growing up and sort of got out of it when I got to high school. I mean, still very interested in theater, but like my high school theater program wasn't excellent as most aren't. And the community (laughs) theater that I had been involved with, uh, it wasn't really working out anymore. So I sort of got out of it and I actually went to college I went to a performing arts conservatory, but I went for music performance. Oh. Um, so I'm an instrumentalist, actually. And so I started out as a jazz saxophone major in college, and that was sort of my main hook for a while. But I've always been a writer in various forms, and I eventually ended up getting back into it because um, I was very fortunate to go to a school with just like so much student-created and student-driven art happening, which was phenomenal. But one of the things that my school had was this weekly playwrights performance series where every week they took a new student written and submitted play, like a short play, and they gave it a student producer and a student director who cast it and put it up in the space of a week. So every Thursday night at 11 p.m. you could go to one of the various like black box spaces on campus and there would be a totally new student play. So yeah, so my senior year of college I was starting to get back into writing a bit and I decided to just go for it. I, and so I wrote this play. It was like 15 minutes long. And uh, they put it up. And actually, it ended up being really well received and was taken to the next step to be one of the plays reproduced for the uh, like end of year students choice award show. Yeah. And so it was one of like the I don't remember how many they, they took four, I think, to be put on in the in the finals, quote unquote. And it actually ended up coming in second place. So that was exciting. Very nice. I submitted the same play actually to a short play festival that happens every summer in New York City called the Samuel French Off-Off-Broadway Short Play Festival. Yes. And it was selected. So actually that's kind of like the weird story of how the first play that I ever wrote has like become sort of my vehicle, I guess. I have written other plays since then and it's something that I'm actively doing now, but that's, yeah, that's sort of been like the really crazy two-year trajectory of that career. Wow. That's a lot. Like that's... 
very congrats on that. That's incredible. Thank you. And now, correct me if I'm wrong, but does the does the play involve robots? It does. <laughs> it does okay. involve robots. Uh, Good. Yeah. How? Okay. So, can you? Because I'm, I'm just Tristan here is curious about what is <laughs> how what is it what is it about? Yeah, because I so, love robots. Uh, me too. So you know, same kindred spirit. It's yep. it's called Singularity, and it's mm-hmm. about 15 minutes long, and it's a two person play. And so the two characters in this show are a robot, an android, a, like a learning intelligence, like very much like Sophia esque, you know. And sure. then the other character is sort of like their chief programmer or like their their personal operator, the person that's responsible for working with them on a day-to-day basis. And so the course of this play is, it takes place from the time the programmer enters the room on this particular day, and there's nothing, you know, outstanding or excellent about it. And through their sort of conversation, because it's a conversational learning robot, uh, it ends up going into all these directions and really becoming a jumping off point for a larger conversation about like civil rights and agency and uh, independence and sort of equality on a much larger scale. And that is where it goes, basically. I was really struck by the idea of the robot singularity and this idea that at a certain point, you know, conceptually, maybe intelligences might realize they don't need the people that made them. And it really seemed resonant to me with a lot of the stuff going on today in like the Black uh, Black Lives Matter movement and uh, the Me Too movement, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this idea that like at some point, marginalized social groups will also realize they don't need the system that's been putting them in this box. And what happens at that point? Huh. That, that is very thought-provoking. It also... Um, that That's... Okay. Um, what's kind of neat about it is since, you know, by the nature of it being performance, blah, 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 it's obviously a metaphor, but what's also kind of neat is um, you could also apply that to, like, the death of God as well, if that <laughs> makes sense. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Like, we don't need you. We're fine. Thanks. But that's yeah. interesting. That's a really, that sounds like a very, something I would like to see. I hope it shows up near where I am soon. It might. You know, it just had a short run in Florida, so that was really exciting. That was yeah. totally unexpected, but very cool. Yeah, what was that like? Uh, you know, it's really neat because when you write something, and one of my actually favorite things about being a playwright, and everybody has different feelings on this, some playwrights are really, really hyper-specific about the way their work needs to be done and interpreted and produced. For me, I was very fortunate because the first play I ever wrote, I had no idea what I was doing, and so it fell to the hands of people much better at their jobs than me to figure out how to make it work. And so, thankfully, uh, the first production of it in interpretation and creative team was just stellar and made some really beautiful statements with it. But what's neat is that when other people pick it up, people who don't know you personally and haven't worked with you, they might take something totally different away from it. And so it was really neat to see this Florida production because it obviously carried a lot of the same themes, but was approached in a totally different way. And the way that they put it on, it ended up making a lot more statements about like just literally the human relationship with technology. And it ended up Mm. being, um, you know, that same civil rights conversation, but also leaned more heavily on the, the literalistic sense of what does it mean to be in the world that we're in today where we're having to confront all of these issues that we've never really equipped ourselves to come up against. And it was really yeah. interesting. Yeah, that does, yeah, wow, yeah. That's a lot of that's a lot for fifteen minutes. It goes a lot of places really fast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's wonderful. Um and correct me if I'm wrong, um you're a West Virginia native? Yes I am. Okay, uh okay. What 
I was just like, it's, what is that like? But like, I don't have a more specific, <laughs> like, cause I know general things about West Virginia, but I don't, right. I'm very curious. No, that's a very good question. So I am originally from Morgantown, West Virginia. That's where I was born and raised. And Morgantown is sort of like the Pittsburgh of West Virginia. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) One in that, like, it's a big college town and there are a lot of opportunities and resources and things there that there really aren't in a lot of other places. But also, additionally, it is about an hour from Pittsburgh. So we sort of had this this suburb relationship with a, a bigger city nearby. So I never really felt the sort of lack that a lot of people in West Virginia do unfortunately have. It is a state with a lot of areas in it that really are wanting for a lot of things. But what it did have was the really beautiful culture and influence of West Virginia. And that's something that is very, very important to me and a huge part of my identity. Um, But Morgantown was a really cool place because you know, it's, um, Morgantown has a lot of government offices in it. Um, it's, you know, close enough to DC that people will sometimes live in West Virginia and commute over. It has like, uh, some FBI offices. There's a NASA office, like 20 miles away. It has the university. So there are people from all over the world coming there. And it was a place that had so many opportunities and such like a rich tapestry of people and experiences that I really couldn't appreciate until I moved away that it it definitely mm-hmm. had a huge like cultural handprint on me you know which was really neat like I was on a competitive robotics yeah. team in high school and it was like really cool to have that opportunity you know because that's not something that everybody does but yeah Absolutely. but having that's incredible yeah, having the university there and having all of these like academic but also artistic opportunities really set me up for success in a lot of ways but it's also interesting to be from west virginia because you know the rest of the country has a very different idea of what it's like to grow up in west virginia and mm-hmm. if people even nowadays people will like hear me talk and they'll be like there's no way you're from west virginia like you don't sound like you're from west virginia I'm like well what does that mean uh-huh. exactly <laughs> but <laughs> they have bigotry in their heart. Yeah, That's exactly. What that means. And I'm not saying West Virginia is perfect. Like, obviously, there's a cultural landscape in a lot of places in the country that needs to grow and change and be progressive. But West Virginia, to me, had a lot that was really beautiful. That was really going for it. I mean, it's it's this state that's founded on the very idea of like survival and standing up for what you believe in. I mean, it's the only state ever really created uh, well one it is literally the only state ever created by presidential proclamation so there's your west virginia trivia fact for the day abraham lincoln's pet project right super cool but it's a state that was like so dedicated to certain ideals that it seceded from a state that was seceding so it creates this really interesting Mm. sort of environment where you know i've i've lamented for years that people will talk about virginia like it's the cultural hotspot of the country like oh virginia is the united states you know but like west virginia was the loyal one there, right? Like, West Virginia yeah, did the absolutely. right thing during the Civil War. <laughs> I think it has a lot to do with the name, though, because it is literally derivative. It's very unhelpful, yeah. Yeah, I, like, if they, what, if they called it New Betterton, maybe. <laughs> like, the new and improved Virginia. Yeah, there needs to be a rebranding statement there, I think. Um, it was going to be called Augusta, actually. It was one of the recommendations for it. And I think that's a beautiful name. I don't know why that didn't happen. Yeah. But. I mean, I think I think a lot of people would respond more positively to Augusta. Than to but. West Virginia. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure it was just like, we, guys, we got to keep it simple. <laughs> we just, like, like let's not overthink this yeah, one. Thanks. Right. 
Yeah, um, but, like, from my understanding of the state, there's, like, a heck of a lot of poverty there. Yeah. And a lot of issues with, like, the like the mining industry. Yeah, in a lot of places. And it's interesting because the sort of the mining culture phenomenon, um, I mean, it does still exist in a lot of places. A lot of places are still very much mining towns in West Virginia. Yeah. But in addition to that, it's also sort of created this lasting economic effect where the towns in West Virginia, at least the ones that I've been to, are all very sort of centralized economies. You know, like even Morgantown, which is like this much more comparatively urban and progressive area, like everything in the town is either owned by Milan Pharmaceuticals or the university. And like, that's it. That's that's the network of the town. Like, that's how it works. And so it very much has like that sort of coal company feeling to it, even if not, you know, without like the horrible environmental impacts and et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, Mm -hmm. I think that that sense of identity and like industry is very strongly linked with being in West Virginia. And there are a lot of places in the state that are in really bad financial straits, which is unfortunate. Um, But you know, it's also, it's weird to be from West Virginia and talk about West Virginia because there is so much of a, uh, I guess like there's so much of an outsider perspective that people have. And it's something that I heard a lot of growing up, you know, people like making all these jokes about West Virginia. There's like, there are these t-shirts that say like West Virginia, you know, 36,000 people, 13 last names. Like it's, they're bad jokes, but you hear all that growing up and you sort of try to distance yourself from it, you know? And I guess that's like, yeah. you take on as, as neutral an accent as possible. And you're like, well, you know, I'm, I'm smarter than that. I'm better than that. But uh-huh. I was very fortunate when I was in high school to have an English teacher who actually through like a weird series of circumstances i ended up helping him work on an appalachian studies elective curriculum and so what that ended up being was me sort of helping him figure out how to like build this coursework and like reading all of these appalachian novels and getting into all these like appalachian films and poetry and like sort of really coming to fall in love with what that identity meant and what it meant to be from this area and to have that sort of story in you. And it's been really, really cool. And so now it's something that like, I will defend until the day I die, (laughs) which has been like kind of an interesting character arc, but. Oh, that's wonderful though. Like, yeah, I, man, um, kind of, and I had a similar kind of a response to being like I was born in Minnesota and raised in South Dakota. Mm-hmm. So there's like there's certain assumptions that people right, make absolutely. with that, specifically with in regards to like the accent and that sort of thing. Um, and I for a very long time avoided that mm-hmm. and tried to create something like a, like you know, uh, present differently. But then I got to a point, much as you did, and like, well, no, these people's lives are valid. This is a fun thing to yeah, be totally. as well. Specifically, like, I think if you're any in any way from the quote-unquote the South or mm-hmm. anything like that, in you know, South Dakota is the South of the North. Right. Yeah. But, but you can be like, like, yeah, I know how to ride a horse. Yeah, what about it? Like, mm-hmm. and people look at me like, oh, you? But you're so small and... <laughs> afraid always i'm like yes and so are horses <laughs> a um, lot in common they and i yeah yep i bond with the animal and their weird finger legs <laughs> um but that's really cool and the same thing happened with me in minnesota like it's it's weird uh and i i don't know if you've had this experience yet but like if you spend any amount of time outside of your home state and mm-hmm. then you start meeting people that are from your home state mm-hmm. and then you just 
or like in the minute like there's that that meme going around the internet of when someone talks about my home state oh yeah I, absolutely yeah. and you immediately get defensive and it is that it's just like oh yeah well we gave you prints so shut up right yeah like yeah bob dylan wouldn't be a thing if it weren't for us so but anyway <laughs> but that's wonderful um and like from my understanding like uh the Appalachian culture came from a lot from, like, Ireland and Scotland, and then just, like, they kind of went up into the hills and started making music and moonshine, sort of. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, very much so. It's definitely, like, a blending that is sort of at its heart, you know? It's this idea yeah. of, like, all these various cultures coming together, like, this mm -hmm. Southern Baptist-esque, like, culture uh, that was sort of native to this area versus, like, you know, the African-American cultures that came over here and then, like, the Pennsylvania Dutch, that, like, influx of German and Austrian immigrants, like, that landed in that area. A lot of them also settled up in the mountains. And then you had the, uh, the Scots-Irish who... And it's interesting because, like, geographically that area in specifically West Virginia, but in, in other Appalachian areas as well, so resembles those areas that they were coming from that that's, you know, mm -hmm. they just, it made sense for them to stay there and to sort of adopt the same kind of lifestyle they'd had. So you had stuff yeah. like that. And then uh, all of that sort of coming together into this like weird hodgepodge of, of creative cultures is really interesting, but it, it is a creative culture. You know, it's very much like for hundreds of years these were people who literally had no way of knowing if they would survive to the next winter and so yeah. they found this way to sort of make that life worth living by just constantly singing or storytelling or creating or passing down everything that they had or you know sewing and tapestry and weaving and it's really just incredible because it's such a like vibrant maker culture and i think mm -hmm. that's really been something that i've tried to take with me into my creative career even when i'm writing about robots which doesn't seem like a very appalachian thing it's this idea of like storytelling and passing things on and, and creating something that will continuously grow and evolve as you're doing it that i find really just beautiful yeah yeah i can i can definitely see that i um that's wonderful and then whenever i listen to like any sort of Appalachian music, specifically mm -hmm. like the spiritual stuff. I'm like, how rough were these people's lives where they're like, someday I will die and join Jesus. Like, oh, oh man. Boy. That's not even the most depressing Appalachian music. Oh my God. Look at, look. <laughs> there's so much. Okay. So in addition okay. to like doing Appalachian studies in high school, in my, uh, in, in university, my school had these freshman seminars, like everybody does, but my class, mm -hmm. my, uh, my school was very much globally minded and like this performing arts like uh you know liberal conservatory uh -huh. and so our first year seminar classes were actually these much smaller classes broken down and the way it worked is like various professors could teach like totally different topics that became sort of like a cool elective that also covered stuff like how to register for classes and like what you're doing here and mm. so each course had like a professor who was teaching whatever subject they pitched and wanted to teach and then a student mentor and then the, the like the students in the class so my first year, the course that I ended up taking as my freshman seminar was, um, it was called Appalachia to Tibet, Traditional Music and Sense of Place. So it was like folk music around the world and how that related to, uh, you know, a sense of identity and how the music that we make in the Appalachians sounds like a lot like the music they make in the Himalayan mountains, even though they had never had any interaction with each other. And it's fascinating. But then I ended up mentoring that class for two more years. So I spent a lot mm -hmm. of time listening to banjo music is what I'm telling you. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> and wonderful. there are some devastating folk songs. There's one called Footprints in the Snow. I won't ruin oh. it for you, but look it up. <laughs> okay. Okay. 
Um, yeah, there's that Steve Martin quote of like, you can never be sad when you're playing the banjo and everyone's like, you have no idea where you come from, sir. <laughs> yeah, right. No. Oh, In fact, so you can good. exclusively be sad while you're playing the banjo. If you're exactly. happy playing the banjo, you're doing it wrong. You have to be so sad that you want to make other people happy to play the banjo. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's actually like something really worth hitting on and exploring. There's this idea that like being so sad that you want to make other people happy is talked a lot about as um, specifically I've heard it used in response to like comedians, right? Yeah. Famous comedians who are sort of notorious for suffering in silence. But I think a lot of creative people are that way. And I think that's, you know, that's the definition that I would apply to certain aspects of the, the Appalachian maker culture for sure. Yeah. And I mean, I think it also comes from like, you get, do get like, a hit of endorphins whenever you make something and then there's mm -hmm. this whole idea that like to create is a divine act and so of course it makes you feel better right totally yeah um uh, but yeah absolutely like yeah um is that is this clumsy ass segue is that why you do it <laughs> <laughs> uh i mean that's definitely part of it so yeah? you know i mean like talking in this, I mean, this is obviously like, this is a mental health podcast. We're going to get into some stuff that's like not fun, but I mean, it's another big thing that has to come up when you're talking about Appalachia and I mean, a lot of areas too, but in specifically this area, it's something of an epidemic is like generational trauma, right? You have sure. these immigrant families who come over and they don't necessarily talk about or address trauma or, or situations the same way that people in this culture do or, or like the, it, there's just like always a gap between the way that certain individuals or families or groups handle things and the way that other groups handle things and sometimes that handling things is just not handling it or talking about certain problems and not others or leaving things you know in the closet or like leaving certain skeletons where they belong and that's a huge thing and in fact I don't think it's ever stopped being a thing because it's generational, right? Like, that's kind of the whole point of it, is that it keeps going. Yeah. And that's definitely, there's a lot of my family that has to do with that on, on both sides. And growing up, um, you know, there were some, some difficulties in my household. And I, as a child, um, even before I really realized it, definitely was showing early signs of depression. And it's something that I have struggled with throughout not only my personal life, but my creative life as well, is periodically getting back into that place and being unsure, you know, what to do with that. And this idea that, like, creating is an outlet for you and also for other people who might be going through similar things is really helpful. It's nice to have that vehicle, but it's also nice to have something, and this is particularly playwriting does mm -hmm. this in a way that instrumental music doesn't necessarily, mm -hmm. to be able to create something like apart from yourself where you can work through things that you're going through, yeah. you know, because you can watch other people on stage talk about your problems instead of you having to do it yourself. <laughs> uh, yeah. But it's, it's actually been nice because there are moments where you can create something and then watch it unfold apart from you. That's very cathartic, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and there's actually, there's another play that I wrote, which recently got a production um, here in Winchester where I live. And it's, a 45 minute long play that's actually about, it deals a lot with mental illness and with some very specific issues. It's, I wouldn't call it autobiographical because it's not, nothing that really happens in it has ever happened to me, except that it's about a man and a woman at their five year high school reunion, um, which I didn't go to if my high school had one, <laughs> but it was the year that I was writing the play. And so 
it's about a man and a woman at their five-year high school reunion um, reconnecting, even though they were never really friends in high school. They just, like, yep. sort of knew who each other were. And having this conversation and, like, sort of through that conversation unpacking sort of the various journeys and struggles they've been on since they graduated high school mm-hmm. as sort of navigated through this space of realizing that they're on the bridge where one of their classmates committed suicide right before graduation, which is a thing that happened to me in my senior year of high school. One of our classmates actually shortly before we were supposed to graduate, um, unfortunately lost his battle with, I guess, depression. I'm not sure of the specifics. He wasn't somebody I knew very well, but it was this weird cornerstone event that sort of through no sense of personal relationship ended up, I think, quantifying a lot of people's experiences around that time. You know, it's really strange to be in this position where you're getting ready to start the rest of your life. And you're also grappling with the idea that you at age 18 are really, really mortal. Yeah. (laughs) And that's a weird place to be in. And it's something that I didn't realize had been weighing on me for four or five years. Yeah. But, you know, once you start to unpack it, it becomes something of a much bigger conversation. And playwriting is a really, really helpful and interesting way to get that out because you can put various perspectives on stage and have them all argue with each other, you know, which is nice. Whereas if you're just sort of writing your own perspective or if you're a comedian and you're writing like your own stand-up routine, you can only really talk as one person. When you're a playwright, you can talk as as many people as you want (laughs) and you don't even have to ever come to a concrete conclusion a lot of people like plays that sort of end without any resolution which is nice (laughs) as a playwright because then you don't have to figure it out but uh, Uh, but yeah it's it's very helpful to to have that as as a way of expression but it's also nice to create that for other people yeah and it's always really really validating when somebody comes up to you after a show you've done like that and thanks you for that because you know for me it's like well yeah on the one hand I do this for other people but on the other hand I think I can only really do it for me and hope that there's other people like me out there who need to see it absolutely um going to like this idea that you get to kind of distance yourself from uh your art and what's kind of an interesting idea that I think I I call it interesting but we'll see um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the uh, uh, idea of you're creating empathy for yourself in that moment. You're seeing how you feel, but treating it as somebody else, and therefore you're having empathy with somebody else, and then you realize, oh, no, that's me. And then you yeah. care about yourself more. And that's also the nature of therapy, is learning to treat yourself like you, someone you like. Yeah, and that's that's another really beautiful way to put it, is, you know, sometimes it's really hard to forgive yourself mm-hmm. for the things that you're going through, or it's hard to forgive yourself for feeling a certain way about the things that you're going through, for not being over somebody, or not being over something, or for not reacting better in a moment that you wish you could have. And so, writing is nice because you can create somebody different than you and watch them go through it and have a very different response to it, right? You can say, like, oh my god, like, of course, like, you'd be feeling horrible in that moment. And you're like, well... I am, okay? (laughs) So, like, give me a break, okay? But also this idea that, like, you can maybe have the conversations with people you wish you could have had, but shouldn't ever really have in your real life, and that's nice, too. Mm -hmm. You know, there are definitely, like, people you should never talk to again, or things you should never go back to, but being able to get that closure for yourself in a very different way, or create people who need closure and then structure it for them is really nice. Yeah, absolutely. Um... 
I wrote uh, a book of poems and short stories, and a lot of them are just like, there's a section that are known as letters um, in the book, and mm-hmm. they're just letters to people that I will never talk to again. Yeah. And it's really cathartic, and like, even if you don't put it in a book and you just do it for yourself, it's great. It's... Yeah, absolutely. Oh, nice. Um, were you encouraged to pursue like artistic endeavors growing up with your family or were they like yeah "Mm." absolutely yeah no no actually I was I was very lucky so my uh my family situation for most of my life has ended up being my mom and my siblings and I okay um which has been great and you know it's like a lot of weird stuff has happened and a lot of like horrible things we've gone through but as a family unit I'm very very lucky because I have a really nice built-in support system, you know, and my mom actually is a musician and has been really wonderful about encouraging me to do these things and has really, you know, almost there are times when I kind of wish that my family wasn't so supportive because (laughs) there are moments when it feels very difficult to like explain to them the depth of the frustration that I'm feeling. Like it's hard for me to say like, you know, I just don't know like if I can make this work and have them be like, well, of course it can. You just have to like write more plays. And I'm like, that's not what I'm talking about, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Um, which is the opposite of a problem to have in this in this field. Yeah. I'm, I'm very lucky in that I was always encouraged, in fact, like required to, you know, learn piano when I was younger, which has been, which was a godsend when I got to conservatory. But definitely it's always been a part of my life. And I'm very fortunate to know that even if at some point I were to stop pursuing my creativity as like a full-time career, um, I would still always feel very encouraged to have it as a part of my life in, you know, the casual ways that it helps me out, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you said it's your mom and your siblings. Uh, may I ask what mm-hmm. happened there? Um, yeah, so uh, that's where this whole, like, generational trauma thing comes yep. into play, right? So, <laughs> so in addition to pretty much, I mean, like, I think everybody in my family would be safe to say has, like, some degree of trauma-related mental illness, mm-hmm. but um, my father in a lot of ways, had some very serious issues that um, were never really adequately taken care of. And I don't think that he ever adequately sought any sort of assistance with. He was adopted. Mm -hmm. And his adoptive family um, on both sides also had, you know, some issues. So my uh, my great-grandmother on my father's side and this is speaking as my father's adoptive parents, like, so the people that I knew and grew up with as my grandparents and great-grandparents. My great-grandparents, my great-grandmother on my father's side um, came over on the boat from Italy. Mm -hmm. And then on my father's father's side, they were Irish immigrants. And so there was very much that sense of like, you know, there are things that we just don't talk about and there are things we just don't like do or, you know, say, or I guess like polite company, you know, that type of thing, if you're familiar with that culture at oh, all. Oh, no, not um, at all. Not at all being <laughs> not from Minnesota, where it's all just a bunch of stoic Swedish people. Yeah. No, not a Norwegians. Yeah, right? Yeah, no. So I think there's, I think there's definitely some of that. And I'm not going to like blame Italy and Ireland for <laughs> everything that happens in my family. But, uh, you know, there's definitely that idea of, like, these are things that we don't talk about, things we just sort of brush under the rug. And um, it's my understanding, although I don't know that we'll ever get the full story from anybody, that my father, both before and after he was adopted by the family he eventually ended up with, um, suffered a lot of different kinds of abuse at the hands of, you know, foster parents and the adoption system and then his eventual parents that he got 
but when I was, uh, actually, it was like three days before I started sixth grade, um, he just left. Mm. He just got up and walked out. And then that unleashed, like, all of these secrets that we had known nothing about and, you know, sort of picking up the pieces and for years afterwards. And, you know, it's it's a lot to unpack when you're, like, 12 years old, (laughs) right? Like... Because suddenly, like, your financial situation changes overnight. Mm -hmm. Um, My father was an attorney, and my mom was an at-home piano Mm -hmm. teacher. So, like, that was never supposed to be our main form of income. And, you know, then uncovering all of this and learning all of these things about these grandparents that I'd grown up with and discovering just, like, everything that this person that I thought I knew was not anything like that. And, you know, even before my father left, it was not really an emotionally happy time. The household was really, really unstable. And there was a lot of, uh, you know, emotional abuse from from that sort of situation mm-hmm. that was difficult. Um, but that's a pretty instant way to have your world totally Absolutely. turned upside down as a kid. And so that uh, has, you know, it was something that took, I think, several years to sort of come to terms with. And I, obviously there are parts of it that I'll be coming to terms with for the rest of my life. But just that idea that, like, you know, so much can be hidden and people won't even really think to look for it uh can really mess with you in a lot of ways and it really like affects your ability to to trust people but yeah but uh yeah but that was sort of that that basic narrative so it's it's since then it's been you know my mom and my older sister and my two younger brothers and i going off of that like it's really okay um it is really interesting to think about like something i say often is that like everyone has five things they don't want anyone to know about themselves and like mm-hmm. and it's their you know god-given right to choose who they tell those things to sure but it's also like it does make it difficult to like trust people and think that they're good and kind even though like yeah but i feel like what we have to do and this is by no way like excusing anything or whatever um but like you kind of have to measure the actions of the person that's in front of you not what they have totally and like and in your case i'm like well just up and leaving isn't a good action so you can judge it oh no trust me there were very many actions exactly (laughs) yeah i don't doubt it yeah no this isn't about the mental illness at all this is is about a lot of things for sure um and so did you seek uh, any sort of therapy once that had happened, or were you not in a financial space to do that? Well, there was not much of a financial space to do it. I was very lucky once I got to, um, well, one, I was very lucky to have a lot of, you know, people in my life that I could talk to. Yeah. But eventually, once I got to college, um, my college did offer, you know, free Wonderful. counseling. And so I did do that for a while. Um, not as consistently as I perhaps should have, it, I didn't really ever find like a very good match for me. And that's something that's really, really important if you're going to be like, you know, going through yep. that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, I've had a lot of very wonderful creative outlets and I've had a lot of really wonderful support systems and interpersonal networks that have been hugely helpful to me as well as like, you know, online counseling from time to time or like hotlines or et cetera, yeah. et cetera. I think that absolutely everyone needs to talk to someone and it definitely helps if that person is someone who is going into that talk with the expectation of like the parameters of what that means which is like why a therapist is wonderful right because they are trained to have that conversation with you but um but you know just like with any other vulnerable relationship it has to be somebody that you have that connection with um and you know not every counselor is equipped to help every person um and you know that's a weird thing to get around but 
Uh, but yeah, I did have I did have some counseling in, in college, which was yeah. definitely helpful. What was your experience like with the, the hotlines? I've never done one of those. I'm very curious. So the main hotline that I had was actually a really wonderful resource um, that was made available to me through a scholarship that I got in high school, which was a scholarship called the Horatio Alger Scholarship, the Horatio Alger Association, that is specifically set up to help um, like high schoolers specifically who have come through particular kinds of adversity and like overcome it and like so you know in addition to being connected with those people they also have like a 24 7 hotline that they give you the number to that is like set up to help you so it was kind of like a an emergent crisis okay. kind of thing so like if you were having a time when you really needed to talk to somebody about anything you could call it and like 24 7 there was somebody on the other end of it um and they already sort of like knew what to expect because it was set up for that purpose pretty specifically sure. um now I, I, yeah, whatever um, do you find yourself like being worried that people are gonna leave? Oh yeah, consistently because of that, <laughs> like all the time, uh, always. It's, it's gotten much, much better, I would say, in the past couple of years. Yeah. But yeah, that is like a huge cornerstone of my PTSD. Yeah, how do you how do you combat that? Like finding people to prove you wrong. That's really all there is to okay. it. I mean, it's hard, right? Because like. There's no positive exposure. Yeah, therapy. I mean, there's no way to definitively yeah. get that out of your head because, um, sure, you know, it's really, really easy to like. What's the way I want to phrase this? There are certain things that you can prove through like positive examples, but there are certain things that can only be proven by the lack of negative examples, which means that in any point in time, a negative example can happen, right? So like. At any point in time, I can't really prove to myself that somebody is never going to leave. I can only prove that they haven't left so far. Yeah. Um, which means that at any given point, that could still change, right? So, like, it's it's really yeah. weird. Yeah, that's... Ooh. Ooh, that... <laughs> yeah, you're always... That must be unplugged. You're always in this, like, quantum mm. state. Um, but, no, I mean, I'm, I've, yeah. again, I've, I've been really wonderful. I've been really lucky to have some wonderful people who have helped course, me go through yeah. it. Um, I've been really, really fortunate to have just a super supportive and excellent partner for the past, uh, I guess, like, we've been together th three and a half years now. Um, yeah, yeah, which is wow. nice. And so stuff like that, you know, it gets better every day. But that doesn't mean there I'm won't sure. be periods that, that come back and, and, you know, pull the rug out from under your feet. But... Oh, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, like... So, is, and does that lead into, like, okay, like, I would imagine there would be, like, a lot of anxiety and so forth as well, just, like, in a general sense, is that, and, like, the other thing is, like, the reason, another reason I ask is you talk very quickly. <laughs> yes, Alex. I understand that. I apologize. That is not so no, much no, no, an anxiety I'm, thing as it is a, my brain goes a million miles a minute thing, and so okay, that's so just it's a hyperactivity me keeping thing. up with myself. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and it's also sort of like a, um, and this is going to sound so counterintuitive, it's a public speaking thing, which I know doesn't sound like it makes sense because I'm talking way too quickly for public speaking to ever, like, be a thing, but I, at some point, came to the, like, I guess, understanding with myself that I sounded more intelligent if I filled the space with words rather than with, like, ums and uhs and, like, stuttering, so yep. my brain is just sort of trained to, like, keep going <laughs> no matter what, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, an interesting thing, but 
Yeah, uh, there there are definitely like I think periods of anxiety that I go through, but I would not characterize yeah. my experience as a particularly anxious experience most of the time. Um, yeah. Weirdly enough, like I do have anxiety about certain things and situations, like anybody would, but I would not characterize myself as like a chronic anxiety sufferer. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Um. <sighs> Sorry, I'm just trying to think of things <laughs> um, to say to you other than good job. Um, <laughs> Thanks, much appreciated. You know, can't hear that too much. Yeah. <laughs> but no, like, it is like, uh, what is kind of, kind of going back to, like, the, the, the nexus of this conversation, like, your, your presence online and in the work you do seems also very much to be putting more, like, so much positivity out so that you might feel it in here. <laughs> uh, yeah. And as someone who does the same thing, I empathize with you, number one. But number two, like, have you found ways to successfully turn all of that stuff that's for other people onto yourself? Yeah. Um, so first of all, thank you. I'm glad that it comes across that way. <laughs> I like to think that I'm putting positivity into the world. Um, but yeah, I mean, and definitely, again, it's you know, it, every lifetime is a work in progress. You know, it's stuff that gets better and easier over time. And there are periods that are great and there are periods that aren't. Um, a lot of times as somebody who has been through some pretty bad bouts of depression, I'm just so glad to feel anything at all that like <laughs> positive <laughs> emotions are really nice, but also like getting frustrated is sometimes nice or like getting angry at somebody is really yeah. nice. I feel like, um, I don't know if you've ever seen Enchanted, the Disney movie with Amy Adams as the princess, but like when she realizes she can mm -hmm. feel like more than one emotion and she just like freaks out. Um, she's yeah. like, oh my God, I'm angry. <laughs> this is awesome. Um, yeah. Sometimes. So yeah, I think a lot of times it's just that I personally have like been through so many kinds of, of frustration and like, I don't know, just like overwhelming circumstances that I could never have predicted. And I know so many people who are going through so much that I'm like, you know, if I dwell on that sort of thing, I'm never going to reach 30. So <laughs> I might as well like <laughs> try to combat this yep. in, a, in a healthy way. And I think that for me, you know, I have very much, I think, sort of a, uh, not like a caregiver personality, but I'm somebody who my best kind of self-care a lot of times is taking sure, like taking care of other people. And so yeah. for me, like helping somebody else have a better day and having them say like, thank you. And, you know, I really appreciate that. Or like, I feel so much better now. Like that helps me out mm -hmm. um, because sometimes, you know, there, there are a lot of circumstances in my own life that I feel like I have literally no control over and that's very overwhelming. And so to even have control or help somebody else have control over some circumstances in their life is a really nice vicarious thing. <laughs> but yeah. I think in general, just like, I don't know. It's finding as many channels to positivity as I can. Um, and like, eventually some of them will create a feedback loop, right? Mm -hmm. They must. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, there is that thing of like, when you are really, I don't know, I don't know if this is your personal experience, but like when I find like when I'm very depressed and I've talked to a few people that do get very bummed out like it's like there seems to be this common misconception about depression that it is sadness that it mm. is moroseness when it is really the absence of feeling yeah. the the overwhelming like it's kind of like the overwhelming 
knowledge of your eventual death makes your body feel like, oh, well, nothing is worth it. And, like, just yesterday I was at work and I had this really bad bout of disassociation mm-hmm. where just, like, everything felt like a lucid dream. Yeah. And so you are right when, like, and then I started getting anxious and mad and I was like, oh, at least now I can focus my brain. Right. And it is this weird sort of thing of, like, every everything's a gift because nothing is guaranteed and once you start looking at it as everything is a gift and an opportunity to grow you i feel like are a lot calmer because even if something goes badly it just means you're going to know something you didn't beforehand right totally um i mean yeah that's definitely that's definitely my experience with depression is that it's definitely not sadness you know it's it's a complete mm-hmm. shutdown of the ability to really take in any sort of emotional landscape at all um there's a really great actually you've probably seen it but if you haven't um there's an excellent hyperbole and a half comic about depression that is Mm -hmm. just phenomenal it's like the primer that i use for explaining to people whenever i can't find it i'll send you the link if you haven't seen it um okay but yeah and you know it's difficult i don't ever want to tell anybody that like positive thinking is the way to overcome depression because that's totally totally reductive and it's not everybody's experience whatsoever and I'm not going to say that, like, well, I'm lucky because I never had access to antidepressants. But it's like, I, you mm-hmm. know, I didn't have those resources growing up. Our financial situation didn't allow it. And so literally mm-hmm. the only option I had was to keep going. And yeah. so for me, and, you know, sometimes to my downfall, you know, this idea that, like, well, I can power through anything, like, is not necessarily helpful, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> but coming from that situation where it's like, you know, my coping mechanism is just to make it to the next day, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes all you can do. And so when I find myself in times when I have an excess of positive energy to give back, I like to put it out there because you never know who else Mm -hmm. might need it. Absolutely. I've also found like there's generally, there's generally, I find two responses to being like severely or detrimentally mentally ill. Detrimentally ill. Nice. Portmanteau. Put that in the way. Yep. <laughs> and the, the two responses I generally find are, like, either you get, like, really hard and really angry mm-hmm. and just, like, this nut that will not crack and this, like, thing, like, a thing that's been polished so much that there's no, there's no entry point. Or you become, like, one of the most gentle people on the face of the planet. And I'm glad you've chosen the second <laughs> one because it seems, it's very nice. Because, like, I know people both ways of like all sorts of different orientations and that sort of thing but it is like i don't know like it is the thing of like when when life swings that giant sword just duck out of the way rather than Mm -hmm. trying to meet it head on sometimes is like the better i don't know there's just something so wonderful about knowing like because i think when you are anxious or depressed you are aware of how little time we have Mm -hmm. and once you're aware of that you kind of can't yell at people at a starbucks you know what i mean (laughs) yeah and you know i worked at a coffee shop for two years so like now i mean i just get it i get the human experience Um, yeah you're absolutely right and then there are different responses and like to be totally fair i tried the other one (laughs) And, yeah, you know, same. for for a while, I, I very much thought that like, what would make me, you know, strong or cool or resilient would be to not get invested and not care about people. But 
mm-hmm. I've been really fortunate that I've had so many people who have cared so relentlessly about me that it's it's made it hard to keep that up, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. which is nice. But it's it's very much like I can't really make any promises about my time on this earth or what I'm going to do with it or what I have or what will be available to me, but I can make sure that I at least spend as much of it as possible giving what I have to offer to other people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, there was a thing I was going to say. Boy, I hate when this happens. <laughs> um, but, uh, like, oh, right. Like, there's this, okay, there's, like, one of the, okay, one of the positive things that I do find about, like, not exactly being cynical, but knowing and understanding that the world is difficult and hard is that knowing that no matter what happens, you're probably going to come out of a situation hurt, Mm -hmm. but knowing something you didn't. And so once you kind of accept that, then every moment, like every time you're invested in someone, like you probably, you're right, you're going to get hurt Mm -hmm. and it's going to be scary. But that's life. That's that's until you stop breathing. (laughs) Yeah, so you (laughs) might as well just lean into it, right? Like... Exactly. Just get hurt. Get like love as much as you can. Invest as much as you can. But know you are gonna get hurt. Lean into it. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And you know, it's funny. There's um. And this is gonna sound so silly. I think it's like a there was like a Tumblr poster or a Twitter or something that I saw at, at yeah. one point in time, uh, a couple of years ago, that basically was some people having a discussion about how like something that helped them a lot. Um, and I'm sorry, I don't know you, anonymous Tumblr user. If you're listening to this podcast, step <laughs> forward and identify yourself. I don't mean to to copy your stuff. But basically talking about how, like, something that helped them a lot was to sort of re-envision their mental illness or their circumstance as, like, a superpower. So, you know, like, in the X-Men, the X-Men have these, like, mutant genes that they probably wouldn't really consider a gift under a lot of circumstances. But from the outside, like, they do some pretty cool things, right? Like, wow, you can Mm -hmm. shoot fire and somebody who has that power is probably like, this sucks. But being able to, like, recontextualize it can help. So, like having an anxiety disorder, you know, is like really miserable a lot of ways, but you know, you're never going to be caught off guard because you're always thinking (laughs) of all the possibilities, right? (laughs) Yep. And so like depression, as much as I don't love my depression, there are times when I sit back and think, I'm like, boy, you know, looking back on those periods in my life, like there is so much going on that if I think if I had been able to like fully grasp the emotional impact of all of the horrible, stressful things that were going on, like that would have been awful. And so maybe like just having this shutdown response where I couldn't feel any of it was like my body's way of keeping me safe from that. And, Mm -hmm. you know, again, I'm not going to tell anybody to like glamorize their mental illness. I hate that. And I'm not going to say to anybody like, you should be thankful for depression because that's (laughs) that's so (laughs) wrong. But I'm saying that like, I don't know, there are times when I'm, I'm able to look at my situation or like my whole like mental setup in general and at least coexist with it in a way that I understand what its function in my life is. And yeah. that's helpful. Yeah, absolutely. I, I often kind of th- like, specifically because I'm on um, the bipolar spectrum. And mm-hmm. so it feels like a lot of the time that my emotional or mental state is like a um, an immune system response Mm -hmm. yeah of like man i've been like some some of this stuff some of my life has gone really bad now i'm all of a sudden very happy for no real reason and that sort of thing and that's kind of what i like i kind of like 
I used to just like, uh, right, um, anxiety disorders are just like having lupus. Because mm. it's like the white blood cells of your mind are just attacking you constantly. Yeah. And it's just like your body doesn't know any better, but there are some like you will never be caught off guard or you will never mm-hmm. be late to a meeting. Right. Like there are some benefits and talking about like the reason I think art is so important is you touched on it with both the robot thing and the um, X-Men thing you said of like you can apply so many things to Mm -hmm. just one thing because everyone's gonna and kind of talking about what you were talking about with like the ambiguity that you can have as a as an artist and a playwright because the the audience is going to project whatever they're they want on (laughs) your thing anyway you might as well do what you want yeah pretty much yeah yeah sorry i pull a lot of sci-fi references so i should have put a warning on that no (laughs) you're quite all you're quite all right like like the the thing like obviously like x-men was a metaphor for like civil rights and then with the movies with um uh lgbtq Mm -hmm. rights and then but you can also apply mental illness to it as well but the one i like because it is like um, a lot of mental illness is like genetic. The whole idea of like what the Skywalker legacy is, yeah, and applying what that power means, what that means to be chosen to have this weird gift slash curse, mm-hmm. is fun for me. Like the <laughs> whenever my sister, because my sister is also like has a lot of stuff going on with her, and whenever she's having an episode, I will turn to her and go, "My father has it." I have it. <laughs> you have that power too. It's yeah, nice. and you know that's that, that's also a good analogy because like we were talking about earlier, you know, however much those circumstances suck, there is always an element of choice in them. Yeah. And so this, you know, you can have this in your father before you can have it in his father before him can have it, yep. but but it's still always going to be up to you to start that over. You know, you mm-hmm. don't have to be beholden to the ways in which the people before you have handled this situation. And that's something that's been really helpful to me, unpacking, like, this idea of generational trauma. You know, it's this idea that, like, Mm -hmm. you are not fated to make the same mistakes the people before you have made. You know, no matter how many people in your family line have ended up in abusive relationships, you can be the person to break that cycle. No Mm -hmm. No matter how many, like, times people in your family have fallen into addiction patterns, like, you can still change. You can still be Mm -hmm. the link in the chain that breaks that. So that is, like, a really apt metaphor because, you know, it, it's scary to have that legacy on you, no matter what that legacy is. Any legacy yep. is terrifying. But knowing yep. that, like, you can always choose to embrace it in a new way or to reject it entirely is, like, totally up to you. Yeah. Let the past die. Kill, <laughs> Kill it, it if you have, have to. to. Yep. yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, on that note, I kind of want to wrap up, but... Um, I also want to ask you two questions. Sure. Um, one, what is the most helpful, like, the if you could bumper sticker, the most helpful thing mm-hmm. that has let you get through all of, like, the trauma and, and dealing mm-hmm. with PTSD? Like, w- what would you say to someone if someone came to you and was like, help me, please? Get a dog. <laughs> get a dog? Get a dog. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I knew I liked you, but I didn't know I loved you. Oh, um, no, that's wonderful. Yeah, no, seriously, get a dog. Get a dog, yeah. because a dog won't leave you. A dog will love you. Um, and uh-huh. <laughs> I should have brought that up earlier. But that's, uh-huh. honestly, like, I'm, I'm half joking, but I'm also very serious. I have a dog now, and I had a dog 
um, throughout my childhood when I was mm-hmm. initially going through a lot of those things. Um, the first one was like just a, a beautiful, perfect, wonderful golden retriever who is like probably the best kind of dog that a young girl with depression can have because uh-huh. he will just like lay on your bed for hours and love you if you need him to. Um, and yeah, yeah, and it was it was really devastating when I got to college and we had to put him down, but. Um, mm-hmm. But the dog that I have now is like very different in every sense of the word. He's um, he's some sort of German Shepherd mix, wild thing, and he's hysterical. <laughs> but, but my dog actually is very, very anxious about a lot of things, and I think my oh. dog has PTSD. And so, like, yeah. it's actually very nice because there are times when it's like, okay, I have to get up out of bed and I have to go do this thing because there is a creature that needs me to take care of it. Yes. Um, and that's really helpful. And that's mm-hmm. actually also, like, just as helpful as knowing that, like, this animal will love me no matter what. And knowing that, like, this animal understands, like, on some sort of sensory level, even before I do, when, like, I'm upset about something. Um, uh-huh. So it's nice. But, yeah, get a dog. <laughs> Definitely yeah. get a dog. <laughs> do you think it's, like, one of those situations of, like, you know, they say that eventually your pets start looking like the owner do you think it's like that only psychologically no i'm kidding um, no could you imagine oh that would be so rough yeah, no i hope not um anyway no he's oh, a rescue uh, he had some things that happened to him oh, before we got I'm him sure. so. well that's very good though dogs are wonderful i want one very badly but i live in a tiny basement apartment in new york yeah so that's but, difficult so just walk yeah. other people's dogs yeah i'm i'm trying to uh wag 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 um hire me um the second thing i want to ask you is where can people find you and all your positive good stuff on the internet well um my the place where i'm most active is probably twitter i'm on twitter like all the time always talking to people i love having conversations with people on twitter so like at me unless you're gonna call me a whole bunch of misogynist slurs and then don't at me um (laughs) but my twitter handle is at modern underscore minstrel m-o-d-e-r-n underscore m-i-n-s-t-r-e-l where does that come from may i ask uh yeah no you're welcome to ask it's literally just like I play music and I tell stories and I do that okay. in 2018 instead of in 1463. So <laughs> I'm a modern minstrel. Very good. Okay, good. And do you like a website or just the Twitter? Uh, no, I do have a website. My website is <laughs> my website is therealalexflanagan.com. Very nice. Um, so you can find me there and that'll have like updates on my, my playwriting and my music and et cetera, et cetera. It's not as updated as frequently as I'd like it to, um, but there's a contact form on there if you ever need to get a hold of me and there's, you know, basic updates about things that I'm getting into, so. Mm-hmm. Um, two other things. One, is K9 just your favorite character because it's a robot and a dog? <laughs> is that like the ideal thing for you? Uh, shoot, you know, I'm actually like, I, I'm not really a Hoovian. Much of a Hoovian. I've watched like a couple yeah, episodes not here and there. You to be. But, um, but by the time I was getting into it, like um, there was so much horrible show writing going on that. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> but, oh, I, I understand. I was like, I didn't need that. Um, yep. But I, I have watched clips of K9, whom I love very much. So Good. yes. Um, <laughs> also, the cool like alien robot dog from Battlestar Galactica, the original one, is a good dog. Right. Um, okay. So, you know, if you're looking for good robot dogs, there is no shortage of good robot dog content out there in the world. That is true. Um, you also have a podcast where you talk about cryptozoology. I do. Um, what got you into that? I'm just curious <laughs> in general. Is it just the legend of Muffman? 
<laughs> well, I mean, Mothman inspires me in all that I do, but yeah. uh, I am from West Virginia after all. Yes. Um, and well, and that's a cool thing too, right? It's like that idea of sort of reclaiming your native identity. Like everyone's into Mothman now. Nobody likes West Virginia, but everybody's into Mothman and you have to <laughs> reckon with that. If you're going to be into Mothman, you have to like the rest of us. Like it's, that comes with the package, right? Yeah. Um, yep. <laughs> miss me on this Chicago Mothman bullshit. Um, anyway. <laughs> Um, anyway, the reason that all came about actually is a couple of reasons. Um, my best friend, Addison, who has been a guest on this podcast before, yes. actually, um, she is like a scream queen, horror enthusiast, savant. She does like a lot of voice acting on the No Sleep podcast and various horror podcasts. And she does a lot of like horror movie reviews and that's totally her thing. And I'm very into like folklore and mythology and like folk culture. And so like that is the very natural intersection of those two things, I mm -hmm. think. So we run this podcast together where we talk about a new cryptid every week, but it's also literally, and I'm going to tell you this story now, <laughs> um, me and Addison and my partner, Andrew, who's also our composer for the Cryptid Keeper, sure. um, were all out getting like drinks and appetizers one night and we were like very slightly buzzed and we were having this joke about like, what if there were like a skinwalker that were trying to catch you, but the only voices it had ever heard to imitate were like very silly. Um, yeah. So it was like, Susan, get out here right now. Um, <laughs> I'm so sorry. It was like a horrible Minnesota thing because that was like the voice that Addison was doing at the time. Um, oh, and so we funny. like joked about starting a podcast about it. And then I came up with the pun, the cryptid uh -huh. keeper, which I thought was hysterical. And so like, that's, the it is very that good. We, have it. we literally, the podcast exists because we were like just tipsy enough to think that was hysterical. And so we started it. <laughs> that's wonderful. Oh, it's a very good show and it makes me very happy. So thank you for doing it. Uh, thank you for listening. It makes us happy to know that it makes other people happy. Happy, happy, joy, joy all the time. <laughs> but thank you for being on. I yeah, appreciate thanks it. Thanks for having me. Billy Conahan. Welcome to the show. Sleeping with an fly. Hi, I'm Miles Newber. And I'm Tristan Miller. Tristan? Hmm? What do you think of movies today? I don't think they're very good. They're a bit crap lately, to a be honest. A bit crap movies. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, wouldn't it be nice if you could if you could hear about good movies? Yeah, I would love to hear about some good movies. Just like some... And I feel like it would be really helpful to hear like a lot of ideas for a lot of good movies. Yeah. Probably like weekly. Yeah. Where could I find those good ideas for those good, good movies? Some, like, really good movie mm -hmm. ideas that you could listen to. I think there's a podcast that does just that. Oh, what's it called? Elevator Pitch, starring Miles Newberth and Tristan Miller. Oh, gosh, it's ours. It's our podcast. Oh, when does it come out again? Every Friday, we each come up with a good idea for a movie. Based off of a prompt we've pre-selected. Yeah. We each pitch an idea to a judge, and that judge tells us who wins and who dies. 
trapped forever in an elevator. Going up!